Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. Look, we have a great conversation today with Craig Swanson, which is about his own personal startup studio. He has such this amazing background and I love how he's helping content creatives develop their own businesses. But before we get too deep into this, look, I've been talking with a lot of the listeners. Thank you so much for reaching out. And some of the things that kept coming up was finding a community of other entrepreneurs who are working on becoming better at being an entrepreneur. And you know, that's so much of what I'm trying to talk about and learn from our guests. So what we went and did was create a community of deliberate entrepreneurs called deliberateentrepreneurs.com. We'd love to have you join. We have a great group of people and we're working on consistently improving each other, helping each other grow as entrepreneurs. Now, you should go check it out if you're interested deliberateentrepreneurs.com, or just go check out our site. We have some links to it on beyond8figures.com. And look, it's all about helping each other become better at doing this thing we love, being entrepreneurs. So if you're interested, go check it out. We'd love to have you join us. Let's talk about Craig. Craig has some amazing experience. Yeah, he's a board member at the accelerated group within the entrepreneurs organization. He's been an EO coach. I mean, pretty cool stuff. But going back, he's had his own digital product studio. He's been a partner at different types of content development companies. He knows how to help create audiences and develop businesses from those audiences. And now he's working with a lot of lifestyle gurus, fitness, et cetera, to create and upscale their businesses. So we're not talking about, hey, I have an idea and I want to teach gym classes. It's like, People who already have an audience and they want to take it to that next level. I think it's really cool doing that because that's kind of the coolest thing you can do. As someone who's been in the agency world forever, some of my favorite memories and experiences as an agency head has been when we've been able to help our clients really create that extra jump in their business. There's, yes, we do this because we get paid and we make money, but when you help someone else create that extra level, it is just such a great experience. And Craig has built his whole experience around doing that. So look, I'm really excited about what we get to talk to him about and what we're going to learn. Now, I love how he kind of, he'll talk about a few things that I think are worth pointing out ahead of time. One, about Getting into scaling is about getting into what is most important to do. That sounds pretty simple and kind of, okay, yeah, yeah. But as Craig will explain, it's a lot about figuring out what is so necessary about your business, about what you're doing, and letting that, as I've jokingly called it, that foundational work guide where you take your advances. So doing the things you need to do first and then from there, finding where the opportunities are. Nothing rocket science, nothing amazing, 
but just worth repeating, especially as Craig so patiently talks about it. Too often people jump for these huge fast growth moments when reality is if they were to just put a little bit more work into the daily day, the sweeping, the carrying of water, you'll get much further in the long run. Two is this idea that entrepreneurs are also better off in going for things that are bigger than themselves, creating businesses that are more than themselves, creating offerings that are more just about their ability to offer something directly or about, hey, look at me, look what I can do. Now, this is really interesting from someone who really works with personality-driven businesses and helping them scale and create these things. So really kind of cool how he talked about that and just specifically because of what he is doing. Lastly, listen to how he talks about the launch process. He really has this great concept and listen because he'll go a little more specific, but I love anything that kind of takes you softly into something like, oh yeah, sketch it out, get you, you know, be a little aspirational play. Oh, doing more and more and more until you're focused and locked in. It's such a cool concept because I know for myself, I have so much effort to try and be perfectionist that I sometimes avoid doing things that my best successes have been when I've done a little bit, a little bit until I've been so caught up in so much fun or so much effort that all of a sudden I'm locked in. And the fact that Craig talks about how he's codified and structured in this and developed this process for his efforts and for the people he works with, I think is really kind of cool. And he does it so much deeper and better. So look, let's go talk with Craig and there's so much to learn and just such a great guy. Good morning, Craig. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Cool. Thank you. I've been going through your background and I love what you're doing now at the studio. I love that concept. One, as my uh, bright, shiny object syndrome, just the concept of that and flashing like, oh my God, that's so cool. I know you have to have discipline and a lot of work in doing it, but still my bright, shiny object is like, but I really loved, you know, and I was talking to the audience, like, I guess, your background and rolling up the photography platforms, which I never would have thought of as like a thing, you know, let alone something that was so successful. So I'm really excited to dive into this. But before we go too far, would you maybe talk a little bit about where you see yourself as an entrepreneur these days? These days. All right. Well, so these days... I will just start by saying I have not been a 51% or more owner in any business I have started since 2010. So these days I am a professional partner. I partner with generally multiple creatives at a time. So I generally have three companies going at any given time at three different stages. They're generally all with creative early entrepreneurs. So people have, have created a lot of, they're like little mini internet celebrities or they've created a huge following online. They are starting to like create an audience, but they are in the process of basically growing their first business. And I'm coming in as a business partner to help them really grow their first business of significance. Around their influencer status. So one, the professional partner, and that is something I've talked about with other guests. As you kind of go along your journey, you realize there are things, one, you can't do yourself, but then two, just your opportunities to people you know. I don't want to get you too far off track, but the two things I want to ask you, one is, do you have process of what makes a valuable partnership for you? 
And then how do you define these influencers as being ready for having business built around them? So in general, in general, they kind of come hand in hand in terms of the process of finding if someone is a good fit and also like surfacing that because I effectively am partnering with people that have already reached a significant influence in their community. They are many celebrities within their community, be it, be it fitness, photography, hairdressing, wherever that is, they are known by everybody in that community. They generally have a following of over 250,000 people in some form and they have had some success creating digital goods. So they've sold maybe over $100,000 of courses or digital goods or something like that in the last three years. And there is something in the mix that is keeping them from going bigger. And their awareness of that is what makes them ready to partner with someone to basically see the business as something that is not just them, but that is something that a partnership that a team could start building and, and making bigger. That is not the case for most people. Most people I talk to is, are, are not ready for that step for various reasons. Either they're farther enough along, they don't need someone, or they're not ready to see the value of bringing someone else into their operation. Having dabbled a little bit around the funnel world and some of this, and you get those flashes, you do see people burst very quickly and then either fade, burn out, or sort of stabilize. So that is an interesting, because there is quantified structure, like you need an audience of this size and a sales structure of this size. Boom, boom. But that, that transition part, how do you find them? Yeah, is it inbound content talking to the issue? You're whale hunting, basically. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and the short version is I, I help as many people as I can. So I tend to have a lot of conversations with a lot of creatives. In the past two weeks, probably about three or four people have just booked calls with me just to talk about their particular situation and what they've got going. And I am not looking to convert people into clients. I'm not looking to convert people into partners. I'm looking to help people as much as possible. And when that help becomes clear that there's an opportunity that they want more help than I can just give from the outside, we can have a conversation about me moving in with them and building something together. But ultimately, I'm in a referral-based business. There's a lot of trust that comes into play. So I tend to try to build out systems that make everyone feel safe at every stage. And I'm really unprecious in terms of being able to help as many people as I can. Very simple sounding, but just having tried to do some of that in different aspects, the amount of work and your sort of your processes to, for everyone in the stages, that's a lot of thought process that goes into, especially in your case where you are just, if you're doing one deal a year, the warming figuring out how to keep people engaged on a long period of time to the point where they get into your framework. Exactly. You know, one of the things I really realized I, as context, are you familiar with EO entrepreneurs organization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that you've been yeah very active in that. Yeah, absolutely. So the entrepreneurs organization is for companies, for entrepreneurs doing over a million dollars a year. They're localized regional groups. I am actually the chair in my region for something called uh, EO Accelerator, which is for entrepreneurs that are doing 250 or above, but have not yet broken a million. They're trying to make that first leap up to a million. And it's actually one of the things that one of my ways of giving back to the community is by basically that is the space I spend a lot of time in is basically helping entrepreneurs in these early stages, trying to find something that is scalable, because I think that is a task of a business that wants to scale in the first million is to learn from customers what is going to scale, what, what is not needed, and to try to find within that product market fit something 
the one or two things, but usually the one thing that's going to work because too many companies are small business owners and they spread themselves as opposed to scaling themselves. They basically are adding on service after service that maybe ladder up to something significant, but all ends up creating weight on the owner and, and creating a lot of legacy knowledge inside of the system that needs to be honored. Whereas whenever you're doing a deal and you're selling something with something scaling, ideally the simpler, the better up to a certain phase. And I'm a huge believer that when a company is designed to scale, once it starts scaling, the weight on the business owner should become lighter rather than heavier if it's scaling properly. I like that. Yeah. I mean, having gone through some interesting, you know, growth situations in my own past, it is very often the temptation is, well, less incremental and incremental growth consistently executed is the most sure way of growing, but it can also spread you wider and wider if you don't also build the right infrastructures. So focusing on a growth, specifically around growth method, that does, it's a lot of logical sense. It just, it's hard to be willing to be in that mindset. And I actually, you know, you said a little bit early on, you know, shiny object syndrome. A lot of the people I partner with have a, a touch of ADHD, which makes them very attractive as content creators, but maybe it works against their ability to lead a team consistently. You can incrementally grow a business to above a million by adding on all these auxiliary products, but generally a business that has grown that way to a million is not positioned to scale. And so I think it's important to be clear what type of business you want to grow. And often I'm coming in, I want to build a business where my job is to try to get that business to a million dollars in, re in recurring revenue, just as kind of a baseline. And for that, we're looking at having a simple one product, one membership, one kind of like core piece. And if we can't get to that million dollar point on a core piece, we're going to really find it hard to be able to scale to the next level. You can have a good business, but not have the growth business. Exactly. And it really depends on what it is that I'm trying to build. And we were talking about finding partners. For me, I own my first business. I started my first business when I was 18, and it took me 25 years to work myself to a place where that business was functioning without me, and I was able to sell it to the employees. And along the way, the, the Venn diagram of my business and the Venn diagram of me were just right on top of each other. The business was my identity. I was the business. There's no separation. When I am looking for partners, I no longer see the businesses I am creating as me. I no longer, I, I'm no longer creating businesses that represent me or even need me as an integral part. And that's why I generally have a couple going at one time because they are at different stages and they're able to use different parts of me at different stages. And for me, I found a tremendous amount of freedom in there, but that is not the path that a lot of people want to take. So when I'm, when I'm talking with people early on, they're really, I'm really testing them. Are they able to separate their identity from themselves, from the business, or if they are not, is it a path that they want to go on? Is there something bigger that they are trying to build above and beyond the life that they are living? And there's not a wrong answer there. The only wrong answer is the dishonest answer. That is really cautioning because one, as someone who I literally just a week ago, I was referencing my last agency that I sold and I was talking first person and it was like, Ah, I caught myself even in it, but it, it is so easy to fall into. And that was when I did my postmortem of that about a year and a half after I finally forced myself to look at, you know, the good, the bad. I got lucky to sell. I didn't let myself evolve past the difference. It was constantly, that was my focus. So I like that that's a big focus, especially in your partners, 
Because, yeah, for you to be successful as a professional partner, you need your partners to grow. And if they're not willing to grow, what kind of led you? I mean, because, you know, you said you had this first business at 18 and kind of, you know, took you 25 years. But then looking at the business that you just sold and that you're now consulting for the company that bought and now this new one, there is this consistency of partnerships coming there. What kind of led you down that route? You know, so in the first business I started, I had a service-based business that was an IT company that served ad agencies, which was in my name. I read a lot of business books and I started kind of secretly writing business cards with my name on it that said entrepreneur on it. And I did not feel like I could put the name entrepreneur next to my name when I had only created one business and it was entirely dependent on me. Like I'd start to have some awareness of what an entrepreneur was, that an entrepreneur created things that could exist beyond them. And while that was something I aspired to, I didn't really quite understand it until the second business I started, which was uh, what became a company called Creative Live. So this was the this is the company after my IT company. It was the first business that I started with the intention to build it so that it could be sold. That wasn't necessarily saying that I was I was building it to sell it as much as I was building it so that I consciously was not going to be built into the system in a way that could not be removed. We ended up growing quite fast. We ended up taking some VC money and bringing in an external CEO. With those things in place, I ended up having my control of the company slowly pried away from me in a way that was incredibly painful. It was a process I had signed up for. I may not have known all the details of it, but over the course of five years, I lost more and more control of the company. And at the same time, watched that company create a lot more value and a lot more value. And so I don't know that I ever willingly would have gone through this process of giving up control of the, of the company. But as I started to realize how much more effective the company was when I started to give it my talents in more focused ways and allowed other people to take control in other areas, I started to realize both that I liked that freedom more and also I was better for the business when I was not trying to solve everything with my genius. But you're not the smartest person in the room always. I'm kind of terrified if I'm the smartest person in the room now. But you're right. There is a sense of ego. I'll be honest, it doesn't completely go away. So that was the first company that I sold. And then we just sold a photography roll up. And I thought I was above this feeling of identity loss when the business moved on. Because I'd been through, this would be my, my fourth company I had sold at this point. And yet... As much as it helped me financially and as successful as I felt and as much work we put into selling it, because we ended up probably putting about 500 days of due diligence between a failed acquisition and then, then an actually successful acquisition. Besides all that work to get to this point, I felt this loss of identity that, that I was no longer the one making key decisions for the company. And secretly, I was kind of bothered by the fact that it was so successful in marketing itself without me being part of the team that's now leading it. I'd worked to put this team in place that could do it, and they were doing an exceptionally good job. And I looked at that and wondered what I was now that this company was not something that I was driving. There's no, I've never felt that, never. Um, let me just kind of, uh, you know, that is, yeah. You know, I thought it would go away. I thought it would go away. And the only thing that's helpful now is it is a familiar place. I know that is a passing state. It's not the full answer. But yes, I'm not as enlightened at my core as I would like to have myself think as I'm building these things to sell them. I know exactly. Yeah, that as much as I have in the past and in things I do worked on building the system so my team and the people can grow and build up their capabilities and stuff. 
there's still that thing where I want to be able to step into a room and control it. That's the tough one. And maybe we can kind of do this to kind of talk about how you put yourself in the process of being in that situation again and again and again. But what do you do to help grow your ability to become a better entrepreneur? But I love your concept of a professional partner. You know, what do you do consistently to be a better partner? One of the things for me was also just realizing how much I enjoy building things with people. I realize I've structured my life. Every million dollars of realized opportunity that I've got in my life, one to three people have to realize that same level of, of opportunity somewhere else. And so I've just been working from this place of creating results for me necessitates me first creating results for other people. And I really enjoy that on an individual basis with a few people I tend to get to know really well. And having been through this a number of times, I see myself a lot in a, a mentoring role is probably not the right word because you can't mentor a partner, but I am senior partner. I'm the gray haired business person that has been through this before. The thing that I bring is past experience, uh, pattern recognition that comes from having doing things and also just a real strong focus on kind of the business side of things. But my entire career, I have been helping creative artists basically create what they want to create, building foundations around their creativity. I, my first company, I called myself Left Brain Support for Right Brain Professionals. And effectively, that's what I'm doing today is I am partnering with people that have a vision, that have the ability to create, that, that are, have the ability to engage people. And what I'm effectively doing with them is helping build a foundation for them that they can perform and deliver on that allows them to achieve what they, what they say they want to achieve. And in that process allows them to decide where their Venn diagram and the business kind of overlap, what is most important for them that they, that they really want to achieve and what are things that they can let go of that maybe they are just, they've been doing because other people have thought they were important for them. For me, I have a touch of the artist in me and the, and the artist or the craftsman is the person that doesn't want to scale, that is like just hands-on with things. So for me, my area for that is the product market fit phase of a business from say 250 up to a million dollars in annual revenue. I don't have a scalable system to take a business from zero to a million. What I have is a love and a joy I'm the artiste. I, I, I dig in and try to figure out what are the business systems? What is the product market fit? What's it going to happen? Where, how, how are we going to find this? And usually one of the three companies I'm working with are in that phase where I'm just using my creativity, grit, just trying to figure out how to get there. Once we've hit a million, and again, we've hit a million in one thing. So we're not, we're not spreading ourselves thin. So we're basically narrowing in on like one basic offering that we can get to a million on. Then the next phase is basically building out a growth team and I start to shift over into mentoring. So somewhere around that path, I am no longer the hands-on do-it-yourself entrepreneur that's trying to figure out how to find product market fit. I'm moving into mentoring phase and I'm basically mentoring a team of generally four to six people that are responsible for driving that growth to the next phase. And that team is going to be the team that's eventually going to hire additional people. They're the ones that are going to have a, a lot more uh, detailed organization. And in that team, the future COO or, or operations lead or potential future CEO is going to be growing at that stage. And then I would say somewhere around the four to five to six million mark, we shift into a place where 
I almost move into the background as a board member and I'm an owner of the company. I am mentoring or providing troubleshooting or support as needed, but the team itself is not necessarily looking for weekly or monthly mentoring on how they continue to grow. They've started to take on their own focus and life and, and kind of energy. In the case of Subrace Education, when, when, when that was acquired, by that time, the team was running everything. When the business was acquired, I went into consulting mode technically with the company that acquired us. You know, honestly, they don't need very much consulting. It's a monthly phone call just to confirm that everybody that is running the company is still running the company and everyone knows what they're doing. <laughs> Maybe like, what's the best way to ask them this? Okay, thank you. Talk to you next month. It's so crazy that part of the fun of entrepreneurship or professional partnership is this idea that you go from this passion envisioning of how something can be and doing what it takes to get it to being, I now step back and you know, if you're doing this right. And that's something I think that's an interesting dance of ego because encouraging others to grow when you had to make things happen no matter what. And then do that. I like that. And I like the, your approach to that because that is kind of that different. Now, let's maybe just step back because this is something I think a lot of, even if they're not looking at a creative or a force-based or, you know, realm type thing. What do you look at at that quarter of a million to a million when you look at the growth opportunities? You know, do you do that typical, what is the... Uh, Growing, yeah. You look at your map of opportunities. You look at difficulty, time to impact. You've seen those frameworks. Yeah, I love looking at them and then realizing there's only like one in a million people who could actually be that detailed, structured, and still get stuff done. You know, I tend to focus on: is there a coherent, self-defined community with needs? Then, in general, like I'm thinking about this, like the, I think if there's a magic I bring or if there is process I bring, it is often that I am not as attached to the specific service or product that we want to create as I am to the community. Because in terms of coaching small business owners, be it through EO Accelerator or others, I find so many entrepreneurs have decided what it is they want to be known for and what it is they want to create that they stop listening to the market, telling them what the market is desperately hungry for. And I think there's a combination of ego, assumption, like, like being the smartest person in the room, all these packages where, and that was the case for me in my first business, it was all about what I wanted to create, not necessarily about what the market needed. And today, since I am creating businesses, I'm trying to serve markets, I think one of the things I bring into any company I partner with is I spend a tremendous amount of time listening to the community and not listening as much to the aspirational vision of who I'm partnering with. I'm not saying that I ignore that, but I am trying to listen to what the community is hungry for. And I'm trying to see what is responding in there. What, what do they buy easily? What pain does it just take mentioning a simple solution that they immediately leap towards? I am not someone that is extraordinarily talented at figuring out how to sell the thing that we, we designed. I'm better at figuring out how to design something that is super easy to sell. I like that because a lot of times as a marketer, I look at a very wide palette and sometimes part of the move after selling the agency from working with Fortune 500s to, you know, more startup-y, younger, smaller companies was we could use these huge pallets, but it never meant anything. 
you get a huge kick for Huggies and someone may get a bonus at the end of the year. That was about it. There was nothing there. But the framework you put in in developing the communities, because I always say it's like, if you can find a community where they're willing to jump through the hoops of a bad site, of a bad that, then yes, there's put more fuel there. But I like that you further built that down the road. Let's have another time where we can kind of just talk about that because I think the value of finding, you know, and there are all the gazillion tools depending on, you know, wherever you are and you know, what spaces you're looking at and all that. Yeah, sometimes those tools almost take up all my time just playing with them. But how to sit there and consistently grow, I think, is that magic because we're seeing this now of audience-led growth. We're seeing definitely over the past two years, audience-led company, you know, where people are starting with audience development first before they even start into the product, before they start into fundraising from VCs. Yeah, you're seeing people, it's the guy, uh, the hustle, you know, you could go down a long list. By the way, I do have kind of like a self-grown launch strategy that I use for finding something. Let's hit this and hopefully not geek out too much. I, I try not to go down, but I do love a good geek out session. This I used to think was a weakness. I used to think this was because I couldn't plan ahead and I could I, and I needed producers to order it. But it's fairly my process for launching is fairly consistent, although I don't hear a lot of people do it this way. When I have a audience that, that we are talking to. So remember, I'm starting out with people that already have fairly large audiences, 250,000 of some fashion that this, that's listening, but they don't necessarily have product market fit. They don't really have the quite of the product. A lot of times what I'll do is I will launch with just a very brief sketch of our aspirational product that we want to launch, be it a course, be it a product, whatever it else. And I will launch with a launch date of, say, two to three months from the time that we're actually starting to put this out into the market. We'll put a price on it, usually price it in the upper end of what we think is a reasonable area to price. And the marketing for it will be very aspirational, will hit a lot of bullet points of potential payoffs and will be somewhat vague in delivery. And I, again, I used to think this was a failing on my part that I just couldn't plan ahead and anticipate exactly what we were gonna be delivering. And then I take the people who purchase, I don't take the people who say they're gonna purchase, I take the people who purchase on that vague aspirational promise, along with a very strong guarantee, and I put them into a community, be it a Facebook group, Slack, and I put them to a place where we start talking about what is going to be delivered in two to three months and start listening hard to what it was in that promise that they bought. And then I try to, as much as possible, deliver on what they were most excited about in that somewhat vague marketing promise that I started out with. So what this means is, I, first of all, I'm dealing with experts, so we have the ability to modulate and adjust to basically help people in various ways. We have a community that trusts us, and I also have a 100% guarantee, so I keep all this money in a, in, a, in a checking account so that I can also refund people for whom we've missed. But then I build the service for the people that paid, as opposed to listening to the people who didn't pay. And this consistently, like this is just this to me, initially when I was doing this in the early 2010s, it felt like a failure point on my part. It felt like I was not creating a great outline ahead of time. It was like I was not mapping out what we were going to do. And I started to realize it actually was the magic because I was letting the audience that was paying basically become a co-creator of the product and tell us what was important. 
That is great because one, because you know you have the experts there with an audience, you can experiment and you can deliver on the promise. It's so funny because I've seen that call out approach to developing businesses push so hard, but without that underlying basis of true expertise. I think a lot of the funnel world, and yeah, I just jokingly call all the click funnel who's think ethic. Actually, think ethic doesn't do it as much, but that type of space, they sit there and they give these hacks without the foundational structure to doing it. So you get noise and you get frustration from an audience that maybe believes a thing. But just by hitting that one piece, oh, with real experts, it's like, okay, there's a difference. So for me, it's, it's two pieces. A, expertise, and to ensure the expertise is a 100% guarantee where we run the business by basically holding the money until we've delivered. Because I expect people to use the guarantee. I don't. I expect it because we are shifting a little bit after promise to delivery based on what people are most interested in. And to do that, I'm expecting to not 100% satisfy people. And so I need to be prepared to refund them. That is even, a, that's a better leash because I know everyone throws it in, but I, I love the um, online discussions around people who like use it as a marketing point, but then like in the different message boards for the groups, like, well, how do I keep people from using it? It's like, don't offer it. <laughs> I think a little bit has to do with the different phase your business is in. So for me, use the example of Huggies. Like Huggies wouldn't work this way. Huggies is going to grow based on a very, like on a mathematical increment based on efficiency of conversions, like all these things. The point to me in the early days of a company that has not yet broken a million dollars is finding the product market fit. And that's not, a lot of people take that phrase as if somehow they have the product and they're just going to go hammer it down a market and they can just figure out the right landing page to be able to do that, the right funnel sequence to be able to get people to buy and for me, it genuinely is a conversation with a market to determine what it is the market is desperately wanting to pay money for. And if I am holding myself back from delivering something to the market, I'm thinking of some exceptional producers, especially video producers in my life right now, that know how to plan ahead. They basically are focused on delivering a perfect product, so focused on delivering a perfect product that they are unwilling to let the market have a sniff test of that product before they finish it. And so they've got no real information from the market. Whereas I'm a huge believer in delivering a messy, a messy initial product with an audience that we built trust with and earning that trust by not promising more than we are doing and by backing it up with a guarantee that, that has meaning and using that guarantee as part of the learning process for us. What is very, very interesting here, you know, you use phrases like gas, sloppy, yet at the very same time, you're putting it through a very rigorous framework. Sloppy, da, 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 that kind of puppy dog enthusiasm product approach is difficult to hit right, but doable. I think combining it with the discipline side, how that kind of came about is interesting because that's what you need to be successful doing that. It probably doesn't work unless you have a lot of the underlying disciplines already in place. Like you, you've run a creative, a creative agency. Like it makes me think a little bit about the process that designers will use for logo creation. 
generally, like most designers I, I've worked with will start with a pencil sketch because it is important that nobody in, involved in that conversation sees this as a completed process yet. The pencil sketch may actually be harder for them to deliver. They may actually design everything in Illustrator with really clean, and then they have to go make it messier for the initial client presentation. And if they don't make it messy, then the client can't talk back to them about what they like or don't, they don't like. They see it as a completed product. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what we're doing on, on, a, on a course and content basis. It's just harder because we have you know, a thousand customers at one time as opposed to one. Maybe getting into that operational structure, if you're putting all the money in, so you're basically, you're, you're front-loading your cost and your investment to float through this into both the continuation of the audience growth or then to sort of this development of the course, because even the approach you're talking about isn't cheap. The perfect video people, and I, I know them. Is your partner kind of also coming in? Is this sort of an agreement between the two of you of like, hey, are they still generating revenue from the existing products? Yeah, because you said they needed the 250 before you took that next big step. How does that work from sort of a business structure? So from a business structure, generally, so I, I have a three-phase process that I use with new partners. So generally, and sometimes we can skip one of these processes as depending on where they are developmental wise. But generally I am looking at phase one being a proof of concept phase. So, and in a proof of concept phase, I am looking to get something into the marketplace in six weeks to three months. And I'm looking at spending about $10,000 in hard costs to get that out. We're generally working with some type of known content. So we're, we're using something that this person is an expert in, that they've done some teaching. Maybe they've not taught it online. Maybe they've taught in different form. We're looking at an existing audience. And then really the conversation of where we put that $10,000 in terms of hard costs varies a little bit on what's needed. Sometimes it is filming the actual courses that we're going to deliver. Sometimes it is filming some of the promo. Sometimes it is building out something else. And a little bit depends on where we're coming in. But the whole idea there is this first phase. We're not trying to be profitable. I am just looking for evidence that somebody other than me and my partner are enthusiastic about what we're talking about. It's targeted predominantly at the existing audience. Exactly. Because I'm partnering with people that have an existing audience. So basically this first round we are looking at something in their audience, email, social blast, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, wherever their audience is accumulated. And then what we're looking for in that first phase is effectively, are people buying this? We're not even asking whether people are happy with what they're buying. We're not asking if we're able to deliver. We're basically looking at, are people signing up for this? Are people buying it? And are we able to deliver something that hits kind of the basic needs of that community? Depending on who I'm partnered with, maybe we can skip that phase because they've already got that in place. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people, you know, have the potential of being able to do this, but they don't have that phase taken care of. Assuming that we're able to find that there's an audience that's interested, basically the next phase for me is what I call the incubator phase. And that's where we invest. I mean, we invest what we need to, but generally like invest maybe up to another $50,000 on additional goods. And the reason that these numbers are so low is creating online digital content Honestly, money tends to hide learning rather than help learning. Money tends to distance us from our community as opposed to it gives us time to create what we think is perfect as opposed to letting the community see and be part of that creation process. And so in that phase, 
And that phase can take anywhere from a month to a year. We're looking at basically that is the phase where we're trying to determine, can we profitably acquire new customers and grow content around kind of this core concept that we're delivering? We might have a couple different courses. We might have a couple different digital goods. But the point of this is not, can we sell it to my partner's existing audience, but can we expand their audience? Can we bring in people that maybe not are affiliated with this person, but we're able to use the social proof and everything we've got in place to be able to convert a new customer profitably? And the goal of this next phase is to effectively have $250,000 in the bank. Uh, That's somewhat arbitrary, but that speaks to profitability. Like you need to make money, you need to make more money than you're spending. And that is the phase in which I am the scrappy entrepreneur working with them, trying to figure out what it's going to take, testing different places. The third phase is where we actually spin this thing off into a standalone LLC. It, it becomes its own company. We are generally, by the time we're doing over, we've got more than 250 in the bank. We are probably breaking a million dollars in annual revenue. We start building out a team. And basically that is the point where we start to build out a team that core team of four to six people that are going to be responsible for growth, start to build out the mentoring program. And then that is where we begin the slow march from 1 million to 10 million. I always say from 1 million to 10 million aspirationally. I always throw the word aspirationally into stuff that I can't 100% commit to. And then that path is where we start to make more incremental gains based on what we've deter- what we found in these product market fit incubator stages. That is interesting. And then and given what's happening in sort of the acquisition space as things come down, you know, both private equity is coming down. And then as a self-funded search funder, we're going up. Yeah, we're coming from lower to higher. And then, you know, some US-based search, the lovely SBA fund. You're starting, you know, and your type of companies are beautiful margins if they pass those lovely things, they start getting very, very, you know, like your last company. <laughs> uh, wow. And that's interesting because, yeah, once you start passing 5 million, you start becoming a very interesting person at the dance and it goes over. Exactly. And, and that's where you can start to do incremental. So we may have started off with just core digital goods, but now we roll in and have a conference. And a lot of times I'm I'm finding that as we go through that incremental, a lot of times we will start around one content producer and then we start to actually create something that is more of a marketplace where we start to actually have a place that other people in that industry can also start to come in and sell goods. And maybe we acquire some related businesses because we are now building out this core base. The one lesson in there for me is during during the incubator stage, we are trying a number of things but we are abandoning them rapidly as they're not working. We're not incrementally trying to like add a dozen things together to get us up to that place. We're trying to find the thing that's going to work. In agile processes, you know, that type of experimentation, usually that consistent failure rate, you know, or consistent experimentation is the biggest, it's the longest true indication of progress or future progress. Do you have a definition of what that failure looks like ahead of time? Or is it sort of a case by case? I'm a huge believer in calling our shots. So we will put up projections, but I will say I also like substitute the word guesses whenever I say projections. We also look for what the learnings are. So for me, like one of the, one of the best examples is in KaisaFit. I have this online fitness platform that we're building. We did a bunch of experimentation early on. And one ad series that we ended up doing, we ended up doing this experimental ad series where we were promising five-minute workouts, five, five days of five-minute workouts to be able to get someone to, to an end result. and 
that had the greatest click through and email sign up of any ad that we had done at that point. It was huge. And it also had almost zero results after that. So what was happening is people were clicking through the promise and then they were finding us not living up to the promise. At least that's the way I interpret it. So as a concept, it failed. But the answer wasn't to throw everything out. The answer for me was to look back and say, okay, well, look, there is clearly something in this promise that people are absolutely captured by and like they're engaging and we are clearly missing that. So rather than try to figure out a better ad to sell the thing we were selling, we tried to go back and figure out what it was that people wanted to buy based on the ad that they were very clearly responding to. And that is a straightforward, logical and sounds simple in hindsight. Yeah. Too often, you know, having run many campaigns of my own and even more for other people, you succeed on, you know, optimizing for the result and the learning. How do you make sure that you do use that as a learning? Because most people would change the ad to get a better result for what they were offering. Part of it is just an ongoing education of the team as to what game we are playing at this stage. At the product market fit stage, at the stage where we have not yet broken a million, where we're trying to figure out what the audience wants, we do not care about the revenue from our first thousand customers. In other words, the first thousand customers we get cannot be part of the required equation for us in the future. Because if our business is going to scale, those first thousand customers are going to be a teeny tiny percent of our revenue down the road. So... A lot of companies will be so defensive that they, they need to honor the promises they make to their first thousand customers that they basically get locked into the first thousand people that buy something from them. And then that becomes defining everything. So for me, those first thousand customers, what is most important is not the revenue and not the future revenue. It is the learning. It is the learning of what they are responding to, what they're not responding to. And to make that super clear, anytime we end up making any shifts that breaks a promise with those first thousand customers, I want to be able to either give them their money back or have the option of giving them lifetime access to whatever we're building, in part because they are incredibly important to us. So I don't want to discount them as people, but I don't want to over-index on them as the business model that we are going to build. That's interesting because you are very much your first 100, yeah, your first, your first dollar, your first 10, your first 100, your first thousand. Those are... Yeah, you're supposed to turn them into your advocates to you so much, but I like how you're creating that distance because that becomes a trap in itself. Yeah, your first thousand, you need them screaming from the trees. Well, my business is nothing but these thousand people. And even more than that, we want them to be happy. So a lot of people are afraid that if somehow they lose their first thousand customers as paying customers, then their business core is going to go away. And so that's true. Like there, there's the there's the thousand fans theory that basically an artist can basically have a thousand fans and that can support them. That is great, but not in a scalable company. In a scalable company, the first thousand customers should be contributing almost nothing in percentage to revenue for the company when it scales. One of the conversations I'll come up repeatedly with us is as we make shifts, I want to keep those customers happy more than I want to make revenue off of them. And so a lot of times I will be constantly gifting them new things that we are doing rather than reselling them new things we're doing because I want to keep them really happy and because I don't want us to be falsely relying on those first thousand customers as our revenue source. And, and just be super clear, building a small business, my small business, my non-scaling business, I probably had about 500 customers over the lifetime of that business and they paid for everything incredibly valuable. When I'm building a company that is intending to be scaled, 
the first thousand customers should have a badge of honor. They should like feel this like emotional legacy, but they should not be relevant on the PL three years down the road. The business model change, you're going from client to customer to audience, playing where those are and how people interact. And that, you know, X service, you know, having agencies and now playing a little bit more into audience. That mindset, it is difficult because you do everything for a client, for a customer. You kind of create structure and an audience, you create mental value, you know, of whatever that definition. So, yeah. And I think for me, historically, a lot of times we've ended up having customers that look a lot like our experts. So they tend to be the people that aspirational, the expert wants to serve. And then the mass audience tends to be a notch or two down below those people. So we may have launched with people that actually were influencers in the market, but the market may be much more aspirational in goals than, than before. Again, it depends on what the product is. But I will say in a publishing world, it depends on whether you're building a coaching system or a publishing system. If publishers got paid for every person that read the last chapter of every book, and that was the only time they got paid, they would build their business model differently. They would be better and they'd be a lot more expensive. And a semi-recovering business book addict, it is so often, it's like one good concept spread out over 150 pages. Given that you are doing this, how are you defining your success? You've indicated sort of what the success of these partnerships look like. You've indicated sort of where you're defining success for them and where they're kind of going. But for you, what is you as the expert partner guy, how are you defining your personal success for these efforts? I was just looking at that for myself. So my personal success may not always be rational for business. I am realizing that I really like being part of a life transformational moment with partners. And so it is less exciting and validating for me to take somebody that has already achieved a certain level of personal and life experience success and help them do it again. So one of the short ways, I love being part of a person's first $1 million transaction. I think it can be life transforming. I think it can be family transforming. It can be, it can be everything transforming. And being part of someone's second or third round at something like that is a business accomplishment. I mean, I, I won't like say it's not without value, but it's not as much fun for me. It's interesting. You said you didn't find it rational, but the running of a business needs a structure and a process. But the reasons we do things need to, you know, be out there. I just interviewed last week the founder of literally he's an ex-skateboard pro who created an after-school skateboard thing to the fact where just this two weeks ago, they opened their first full-time school, basically for the kids who don't fit it, you know, the skate punks and all that. And they kept getting, you know, because they're public, you know, they're a not-for-profit and all the stuff they had, the, you know, the KPIs and all, and they're like, what they do is their focus is, and I'm going to massacre it, but basically to create as many moments magical life moments for the students and they had a better phrase and different but like they had slipped it into their kpis to the point where they literally were having state regulators going oh so how many were you getting this week or this and that and yeah just because now they but it's like they create their system so then the students can have these amazing moments and everything else is about that. And I love yours because 
I think it is rational to build around those moments for yourself. Have you started thinking of tying that to your processes because you have so much great processes and stuff? Actually, not just somewhat. We are right now, I'm looking at bringing a new team member on. And at this stage, so I'm, I'm what, I'm, I'm 52. I'm young, but also my kids are, are adult kids now. I'm at a stage where I'm not just looking at building my future. In fact, my future is relatively safe regardless what happens. I mean, I could still do a bunch of stupid things, but I'm fairly comfortable at this stage. And so for me, I'm really looking at what type of life impact can I have on others. And when I'm looking at the team members I want to bring on, the really core team members, I'm really looking at who can I bring on that can both help us achieve what we want to achieve business-wise, but also who can take that success and really create like a transformative event for their life story, for their family story out of this. Because when I look back at what I am proudest of, you know, I'm not proudest of, of how much money we did or we didn't make VCs. I am really proud of, of Adam, who was the first employee we had at Creative Live and just the transformative life path that he experienced from making the risk of joining us at Creative Live to what he's got now and the skills he's got now and, and his future now, which is probably a lot bigger than he knew it was going to be when he first signed on. My own personal story probably ties into that in some fashion, but I feel like my partners, they are basically impacting their audience on the thousands and the millions. And I am impacting my team on the ones and tens. So basically I am making a direct life impact on the people I partner with and the team I grow. And they are then basically impacting the world by their broader reach. Not to get too much into the psychotherapist, but it does seem like, yeah, you talk about your first business being that 25 years to get to the point of building it. So like you sound like you had to create your opportunities, left, right, and center. And this is very similar. You know, I feel in my, I never shit a good employee, you know, model. And so I just get a job and then like, why you do this? It works, but started creating companies because I couldn't do what I thought I should be doing. And now the things I look at are not in your structure, which I love and, you know, giving me a lot to think about in my own efforts, but I look for situations where I can help employees then kind of transition into that long-term growth. The donor you know, strategist I had back in late knots who, you know, is the co-founder of a helicopter company that just went public. It is like, I knew you were too smart. You know, I kept telling you, it was like, no, dude, I just want to play guitar. You know, I, I like thinking these things, but yeah. And then he got married and had a kid, which usually turns the down a stoner. <laughs> usually after having a kid, you see that kind of, that change. But no, that is so fascinating. All right, I'm going to have to bug you down the road. If someone in the audience is developing their own audience and they are looking at that type of approach, when should they start talking to you? How should they reach out? What's the best way to kind of start getting into your communication process? So first of all, they can find me at craigswanson.org, not .com.org, or on LinkedIn. And you can, you can schedule with me there. I will say I am not good at theoretical business building conversations. I would say someone, the appropriate time to reach out for me is generally I partner with people that have a fairly significant following and to build something. So 
generally people that reach out to me most often are people who have a large audience and they not necessarily built something or people who have built something that haven't yet built an audience. I think both of those are somewhat appropriate, but I'm a huge believer in if you've built something and you've not tested the market and you've not talked to anyone, like I can have a conversation with you, but ultimately I'm not going to be able to add anything because the market has not spoken yet. And so many people are protecting their own sense of ego. It's like the possibility exists until we put it out on the market and the market tells us what it, what they think or don't think. And I just see so many people squander the future that they want to have because they're afraid to, to take a step into failure. And often failure is the first step to actually start building something. Even though this is what I jokingly say, it's like 99% of whatever I've tried, I shelled that. But it's those little things that I have been successful at that have given me so much in life. It still sucks as a way of living. Except probably your core business is probably built around finding the 1% that's working or the percentage that works. So you're probably like from a marketing content standpoint, you probably are, would not feel bad about the fact that you fail. So like your team fails so many times at their goals because they don't stop. It's not like just one failure is it. That's the whole point of experimentation. You have to get comfortable with the idea that you know, this thing you get so excited about in all likelihood may do well, but it's probably not going to do the thing you think it is. So it's finding that balance to it. Like, oh, it's so close. Got it. But no, and Greg, we'll make sure we put this all in the show notes, how to find you. And also just like, go check them out. It almost, in a certain degree, you know, you were being, I think, a little too polite. You know the people who are in there already, who are in that space with Ellen, and you're probably following. But having gone through your site and also your LinkedIn thread, there is some really good insight as you are building an audience. So as I talk a lot on the show, it's like, you know what, guys, go check out Craig's stuff and steal some of it because there's some really good stuff to be, you have some really good stuff to steal, make it your own, obviously. Go check them out. Steal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Steal something. Do something with it. Call me up and talk about it. Maybe I'll learn something for what you improved. Great. This is great. I'm going to have to you know, have you back on the show and get more into community. There's a, more than a few things we just touched on today. So thank you so much, Craig. This was great. Absolutely. AJ, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. It's been great. Thank you. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.